we come before the Lord this morning. Join me in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 18, the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 18. If you need sermon notes, they are in the bulletin. If not, the ushers are moving around the auditorium. They'll hand those to you. If you just raise your hand, you can follow along a little bit better. What we are doing this morning is we're continuing a series on worship. And let me just announce for those of you who are just joining us in and on the uh, internet as well, what we're going to do to this morning is continue our service and just follow through. But we're going to change all of this evening's ministries. The deacons are going to opt to not to have things this evening because that deep freeze that's coming in and with the roads and uh, warnings already going out. And I understand some of you came in and said that the wind is picking up and the temperatures are already dropping. It's nice and warm in here. Okay, and so we're fine. But this evening we'll forego all the ministries, choir and whatnot. Uh, junior high guys, I think, and gals, whoever was involved, you were going over to Pastor John's for lunch. That's off as well, so that the parents don't have to come back this evening and pick you up. So we'll pick up with our normal midweek ministries. That'll be on Wednesday evening. But let the word be known that we'll just forego this evening because of the weather. Well, let's talk about this morning about that whole idea of worship. And let me let me do it just to get started. Let's do a word association game. Feel free to talk out loud. When I put a word up, you tell me what comes to mind when, when, that, when that happens, okay? Let's do these words. Let's start here. What do you think of when all of a sudden the word comes up? Come on. Planet. That uh, would be the normal one for most of you. Athlete. Who? Oh, can't yourself. Okay, I got you. Okay. What else did you have? What is put? Athlete's foot. Oh, that didn't make no. I couldn't figure out what are you saying? Athlete's foot. I noticed nobody said Wayne. Okay, that that's an obvious. Child. Mother, baby. Bad? Did somebody say bad? Here's one car. Truck? <laughs> Dirty. What's that? Dirty? Yeah, yeah, you need to wash yours here. Here you go, this one, food. Oh, that's a basic food group is chocolate. Absolutely, absolutely. Cookies and chocolate, the basic food groups. This one, politicians. <laughs> there wasn't even a word, it was, ugh. <laughs> what do you think of the word politicians? Liar. <laughs> We're so kind. Animals. Dog, cats, kids? Politicians. Politicians. <laughs> America. Good. 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 Worship. God, church. It's interesting when we throw that word worship, what comes to mind. And so what we wanted to do is we want to talk about a little bit about, you, you weren't in the Sunday school, some of you weren't able to be here for that, but we've talked about, I mentioned this two weeks ago when we did our Bible study, starting this whole, this whole thought for the next few weeks on worship and how to conduct the service, that we're called the Bride of Christ. And as the Bride of Christ, we have certain duties to do, according to Ephesians chapter 5 and other passages, but we're the Bride. And if we would take and do an acrostic of a bride or wife, it gives us our fourfold function of what we're supposed to do as a church body. We're supposed to be doing worship. We're supposed to be doing instruction. We're supposed to be doing fellowship. We're supposed to be doing evangelism. Which one of them is the most important? You know, quite frankly, some of that is, they're all important. Some of it is what is some of the needs at different times and opportunities. And so thinking about worship, it's interesting when you start just doing an overall reflection of it. 
What is it? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to do it? Is it just coming in, singing a few songs, and then listening to me or whoever, and then walking out? Is that what worship is about? Just, okay, putting in our, you know, whatever length of time it is. When we start thinking about worship, it's interesting that if you go back in the Bible and look at the terms that are used that are translated in the New Testament where you see the word worship, or sometimes you'll see service, the words that are most frequently used in the New Testament that are translated for worship are these two proskuneo, and then as well, truel, And they basically come from words that mean to kiss the hand or to bow down before, to pay homage to. In time, in Old English, we get our word worship out of worthship, that word which basically had that idea to consider someone or something very, very, very important. So if we kind of reflect on it for a second, we say, okay, we would understand if we were going to give, a, give some type of defining idea to worship, we would say it's basically if I worship something, I'm giving value to it. I'm honoring it. I'm adoring it. And I'm giving great attention to that item. When it comes to God, we'd say, okay, that's what we want to do. When we come together, when we gather like this, or when you have your personal worship time, it's where, okay, I want to focus on, on God. I want to honor Him. I want to adore Him. I want to give Him some, some praise and adoration. Or celebrate what He's done. Give thanksgiving and reflect on His goodness, His grace, and all that He's done for me. As I was going through and just highlighting some of the different passages where you find worship and just working through, it's interesting to make these conclusions that you can support with multiple passages. Worship is something that God greatly desires. When you think about that old system, that entire sacrificial system that he had in the Old Testament where there was feast days, where there was offerings and sin offerings, but there was also Thanksgiving offerings. There was to be celebration moments. It was all that idea that God gave it to the Jews and said, I want you to follow this pattern because he desired them to gather and to to get together and to worship, to praise and to celebrate him. Something he wanted, something he desired. In fact, now, Jesus quotes this passage from the Old Testament. He quotes it in Matthew when he's talking to Satan and the temptation. We read in Deuteronomy 6 twice, You shall fear the Lord your God. Okay, and it goes on, talks about, and serve him with all your heart. When Jesus quoted the text, he changed one of the words, and he said instead of fear, he, he helps us to understand that what he meant by that is, You shall worship. So when we read the quote from Deuteronomy in Matthew, Jesus inserts instead of fear, that idea of being afraid of, he defines what, the, what he meant by, by that command back in Deuteronomy. Worship, celebrate, give honor and attention to, adore, fall down before, kiss the hand, give adoration to him. In fact, Jesus in preaching, when he's in that situation where he's with a woman in the well in Samaria, he makes this comment when she's talking and asking the questions and She's talking about you Jews, you worship in Jerusalem. And he's saying, you know, and they're having that entirety of conversation. He makes this comment. The hour comes and now is when the true worshipers, we'll come back to that in a second. True worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks, he desires such to worship him. Interesting that Jesus would reveal to us that God is on the hunt. God is moving about. God is wanting people to worship him in such a right way that he seeks after individuals by telling them how, by giving them information, by sending the Spirit, by sending his Son, because he desires us to celebrate him. He desires us to take moments, adore, and to honor him. In fact, as you go through scriptures, this is another one of those overall thoughts on worship. God wants it from all creatures. 
there isn't any group of individuals or any group of creation that God says, okay, you don't have to worship me. He, he calls for it. Even Satan, when Jesus is talking to Satan in the temptation, he says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and in only shall you serve. When he's talking to, in the Psalms, to all the different congregations, he says, oh, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before him. He's our God. We are the people of his pasture. We read in Psalm 97, interesting phrase, all you spirits, in the King James it reads gods, all you spirit beings, you worship him. You adore him. You exalt him. Let all the people, it says in Psalm 99, be moved and exalt the Lord and worship him. Let him be over us. Let us celebrate him. Let us magnify him. Now, we understand. When Jesus taught in the uh, Lord's Prayer, when he is talking, he says, you can go in private and you can worship. Do you remember where he talks about, okay, enter into your closet? And then one of the very first beginnings says, went pray after this fashion or after this manner. And remember how he started that prayer? Our Father, who where? Art in heaven, what? Hallowed be thy name. Okay, that's an act of worship. That was to be a private worship. But you find frequently in the New Testament the group concept, group worship, where even in the Old Testament, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Where all of a sudden in Hebrews, he makes that comment, he says, I will declare your name unto my brothers in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto you. So in God's mind, seeking after people to worship was both in a private sense, but also he wants us to do it in a corporate sense, in a group setting. Now it's clear, and this is the most obvious, if you just go through scriptures and highlight worship or highlight even the practices, you know, without, without even hesitating and thinking long on it, you can immediately say, oh yeah, I know there were some instances where there was right worship and there was wrong worship. It's clear that sometimes God doesn't accept people's worship. In other words, they can't, we can't come and say, whatever we decide to give God in worship, he's got to take. That's not true. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of the human, human race. The two brothers. Did one worship right and one wrong? Yeah, right? Okay, Cain and Abel. One's offering was accepted and the other's was rejected. You move forward a little bit in the Bible, and you have, while God is telling how you're supposed to worship up on Mount Sinai, talking to Moses, what are the people doing down below? Well, Aaron gets involved with the people leading in worship, and they're building a golden calf, and they're worshiping in a way that offends the Lord God by focusing on a, a, a wrong way and a wrong focus of worship. We go through the Old Testament, we come not too long. After they were given all the rules and regulations, you got Nadab and Abihu. Remember, two of the priests, two of the Levitical group. They had the tabernacle, they had the right place, they had the right outfits, they had the right ceremony, but they decided to change in a little bit some of the incense fire and to do their own thing and do it a way that they wanted and therefore they were consumed by the fire because their worship was not that which God had prescribed. How God had said, this is the way I want you to worship. They altered it and therefore they were punished. God desires worship, but he desires it to be done the right way. A way that is acceptable to him. Do you remember King Uzziah? King Uzziah was, was really anxious for uh, what was happening and the threats coming from outside. So he goes into the temple and he determines he is going to lead in the worship. And he is going to go into the, to approach the altar. And he wasn't supposed to, as the king, it was only supposed to be the priest and a select group of priests. 
And as a result, by his faulty worship, what did God give him? The leprosy. God afflicted him with leprosy. Because he did worship wrong, he violated it. Oh, Matthew chapter 6 is loaded. In Jesus, when he's talking about, okay, be not as the hypocrites. And he says that several times in that text. Be not as the hypocrites when they do their worship, such as when they do their praying. What does he say the Sadducees and the Pharisees did? They would stand on the street corners. They'd pray loud. They'd pray repetitious prayers. And it was all for show. It was all to be seen. Then he talks about when they give their worship of, of God by celebrating God and giving some, some different coins and alms to the poor people. They would do it for show. And he calls them hypocrites. And he, he talks about how when they fasted, one of the most spiritual activities you can do that God wanted. But he was offended by the way they fasted because when they fasted, everybody knew it. They put on the long face and they looked miserable. And they made it, they made it to be looking like it was a chore. And God was offended by that type of worship. It is interesting that the Lord God Almighty... He wants us to worship, but he doesn't say, I'll take whatever you give me. He wants it done in a proper sense. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about the church in Corinth and how the church operated. And it was becoming chaotic. They weren't doing things decently and in order. And he says, this is wrong. This is not pleasing to me when it comes to worship because there's chaos. There is all of a sudden several are standing up and speaking at the same time and some are doing this and some are doing that. And the biggest violation in that text is they were doing it for self-acclamation. They were doing the gifts. They were, they were doing their activities so that they would be seen using their gifts, using their talents, using the tongue speaking so that people would look and say, oh, wow, look at that person. And it wasn't for the benefit of the body. It wasn't for the glory of the Lord. It was for the glory of the individual. God was offended by that. So I think it's safe for us to conclude and to make the comments that Jesus wants worship to be done the right way. In fact, he says, I'm seeking after it. But I want you to catch something. Where he starts out and says, True worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. Which says to me, worshiping the right way is evidence of whether or not you're saved. That if you're truly born again, you will be concerned about how you worship. If you're truly born again, you are wanting to worship God, not in a mechanical way, but in a way that truly connects you to the Lord in a public and in a private way that it is beneficial and honoring to Him. I look at this text and I learned this as well, that if we are careful by doing worship the right way, it will help us to impact the world around us. As we are to be the salt and the light, worship can make a difference. Going back to that illustration, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In 1 Corinthians 14, he is rebuking them because they have become chaotic in the service. It has become um, a free-for-all. It has become a, an idea of who's showing off, who can have the greatest number of gifts and the loudest. and It's, just, it's chaotic. And he makes this comment. He talks about how God is not the author of confusion. God is the author of peace. Let all things be done decently in order. Right before that, he makes this observation. He says, you know, if we don't worship right, we can hinder evangelism. If the whole church come together in one place and everybody is speaking with tongues and they're coming unbelievers, will they not say you're crazy? This is really bizarre. It is so out there. 
And he says, it will hurt your outreach to other souls. The way we do worship is really, really important. God wants us to worship him. There's no doubt about it. It's important to him. Therefore, it should be important to us. I think that's a gimme that we would all conclude. We need to make sure that we worship when we gather, both privately and then as a group. That what we do is honorable to the Lord, acceptable to him when we worship. Jesus, in helping us to understand what we should do as individuals when we gather for worship or when we are worshiping in any sense, he tells a story about two men getting together to worship and how he enjoyed the one's worship, but the other one he rejected. You know, what's interesting about this story in Luke chapter 18 that you're all familiar with, it's two different individuals from two different classes of society. They come to the right place. They both go to the temple. They both go, both go to the designated spot. So they're, they're where they should be. They are doing what they should be doing in the sense that they're coming to pray. That they're coming to, to think about, to thank, and to talk to God in their own way. But the, the results are totally different. Read the story. Follow along as I just read it through. And you're familiar with it. And then let's highlight a few practical suggestions from the passage. He spake, I'm in Luke 18, verse 9. He spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one's a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, God, I thank you, I am not as that other man. I'm not an extortioner, unjust, adulterer, or even as this publican. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess... And the publican, standing away far off, would not lift up so much his eyes into heaven, but smote his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, now this is Jesus, done with the story. This man, the publican, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that is exalting himself shall be abased. He that humbles himself shall be exalted. The key word, the key phrase is, who is justified? Who is acceptable before the Lord? They both were doing worship in a public sense. They were both praying. They were both at the right place. But one's was accepted and one's was not his worship. It's like Cain and Abel. That all of a sudden God says, I'm going to take yours, but I'm not going to take yours. What was it about these men that we should avoid or we should incorporate in our lives when we gather to worship? Well, let's look at it. Let's let's take the negative first. This is the one we don't want to do. We don't want to repeat what the, pub, what the Pharisee did. We don't want to do these things when we come to worship. We, his worship, as we understand, was to impress others. It wasn't about him getting close to the Lord. It wasn't about him fulfilling an obligation to God. It was more about how do I impress other people. We know that that is true because Jesus is speaking about Pharisees that this was a common problem. He starts off talking to people who are all about self-promotion. All about despising other people but saying they're okay. We know that it is true because in Matthew chapter 6, which we just illustrated a moment ago, these guys, when they gave, uh, gave coins to, and alms, when they prayed, when they fasted, it was all about show. They did it in a very public fashion so that others would notice them and that they would be commended and people would, ooh, and ah, aren't they wonderful? And their motivation was not to praise the Lord, to celebrate the Lord. Their motivation was to celebrate themselves. Their motivation was to get others to see them, to be 
getting the accolades themselves. That, that's one way of worship that God says, I want nothing to do with. That which is done to impress other people. Another thought. They were very strongly given to following sets of rules and rituals. Now, we understand that God has rules. God has practices for worship. But these guys went much further than God. Now, there's a good thing in this text. The good thing is fasting. We all understand fasting is a profitable thing. It is a promoted thing in Scripture. It is something that is encouraged to do for those who are able to do that. And sometimes, whether it be a meal or a day or an extended period, we understand that that is left to the individual. In this fasting aspect, it was something encouraged even in the Old Testament. But what happened is the Pharisees made it a rule that if you're really godly, you fast twice a week. They don't find that in the Old Testament. You don't find a time frame set. You don't find a number given. You just see it encouraged. Or maybe at a feast time, and that's it. But the Pharisees, by the time of the New Testament, said, if you're really spiritual, and we are, therefore we fast twice a week. And you're not as good as, as we are if you don't fast twice a week. So they added to what God's word said, something that was good, and they made it very mechanical. They made it very, very dominating in the life that you keep it. And, and they were meticulous about it. They were very careful. They did that with their, with their tithes. Remember how they're, they're tithing even the different herbs and the different... But then they would turn around and not fulfill their promises of taking care of the widows. And so there was this, this ritualism. There was this legalism. And God was offended by that. He said, when you come to worship, you know, I, I'm, I'm not about, oh, you kept these, this many rules and therefore, you know, and you're reminding me about it. It was, again, all about themselves. And they would keep these rules that they established and they said we are better than others and they would remind God that we are better than others. When we worship, we're not like so-and-so. And God looks at that and says, okay, that is not what I want in worship. There's a third area or mistake that he made. It was focusing on himself. The re repetitious use of the pronoun I, I, I. Look at the text. That he keeps on talking. I have done this. I have done that. I am not like the others. I fast. I give. I possess. And he keeps on focusing. The, the worship wasn't about God. The worship was about me. About me being seen. About me being promoted. About me getting the attention. And me being the one who is... Who is cared for, if you would. And so God says, that's not what I want in worship. I don't want you, when you come to worship, to be coming with the idea that, that it's all about you. I don't want you to be coming for show. I don't want you to be coming when it, you come for worship and be focused on yourself and not be concerned about others. But you're so concerned about yourself. That was the whole problem in 1 Corinthians 14 that I've alluded to a couple times already this morning. That they weren't worry, interested in building the body. They were interested in building themselves and their reputation. And he says, no, I gave you gifts to profit the body. It's not about you Pharisees being promoted and you being recognized and you being honored and you being focused on yourself. What about the other people? What about the poor? What about those who are sitting outside the temple who are, who are begging? What about, what about those who are hurting? What about the publican? Who needed ministering to? You're not concerned about anybody else. You're just concerned about yourself. And he says, that offends me. That's the type of worship I don't want. And I don't accept. And I, and I reject it all out of hand, God says. Think this through. 
the Pharisee comes to worship, and he jumps right into worship, assuming he is 100% right with God. What, I, what I'm looking for in the text is what's missing. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, God, I thank you, I am not as other men, extortioners and just adulterers, even this publican. I fast twice a week, I give time. Where does he say, search me, O God, and know my heart? He doesn't. Where does he take a moment to meditate, sincerely meditate in God and say, God, you speak to me? He doesn't. He is walking in, jumping into worship with the thought, he's right. He's good. He, whatever he's bringing to God must be acceptable and must be what God is going to delight in. There is no, there is no examination. There is no hesitation. There is no prayer to say, God, search me. Help me. Instead, there's just this thought. I thank you, God. I'm not like that person. I thank you. I'm better. I am 100% okay. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm right. And if there's anything wrong with this group, it's others. It's not me. Very confident. Very pompous. Jesus talks about he's just filled with himself. Jesus' condemnation is, is the idea that he's exalting himself. He never abased himself. He never humbled himself. He never questioned himself before God Almighty. At all. And there was, there's no iota of any hint of him saying, am I right with you? Is there something I haven't confessed? Just jump right in and go at it and I'm great. But the scriptures challenges us time and time again, do just the opposite. When you come before the Lord, examine your heart. Self-examination is really, really good. Do you remember how he writes in, to the Corinthians? He says, examine yourself, prove whether you be in the faith. To look and say, is it, is it inappropriate for us who have been saved any length of time to stop and say, am I really in the faith? Am I really right with God? No. We are encouraged to do that. In fact, we are told that when we gather for communion, which is an act of worship that is done as often as we choose to do it, that one of the key parts of communion is examine ourselves. Judge ourselves. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And he told him, he said, that's why some of you are sickly. Some of you have died because you did no self-examination. You jumped into communion with the assumption that you're 100% right. And you weren't. In fact, he writes in the book of James, when he's talking about, and you're familiar with this text, where he says about reading the word of God, that so often we are, are individuals, we look into the word of God, we see ourselves reflected, but we walk away and we forget what we saw. You know how it is. It's like somebody, you look at your clock and you say, okay, it's such and such. And then somebody says, what time is it? And you right away look back again. You, you forgot what it was. It just, you, you just glanced and just, and he says, that's what happens too often when we come to the word of God. We come to the word of God and we look at it. We are hearers of it, but we're not doers of it. And he says, you need to examine yourself by the word of God. Now, them there is challenging thoughts. That we avoid being like those Pharisees, that when we come to worship, we are ready and willing to examine ourselves. Let, let, me, let me remind you. You all know people, several who have maybe diabetes, something of that sort, that as a result, they're losing more and more feeling in their extremities. You, you know people, I know people, who because of the disease, after a while they can't feel 
the, you know, what happens with their foot. In fact, I know, and you know some people that they'll hit their foot. They'll step on something, and they don't even know that they wounded themselves. And because they don't know it's a problem, they continue on, and what happens is it festers and becomes more of a problem. Losing sensitivity can be dangerous for an individual with diabetes. Losing spiritual sensitivity towards God is worse. Walking in here and just going into worship and just doing the mechanics of it without self-examination is really, really inappropriate and dangerous worship. You and I need to be careful, not that we look good, but that we are doing good. I'm sorry the pictures are a little bit dark here this morning. But um, a few weeks back, and, I'm, and, and Kevin, Sandy, please, I mean this totally complimentary. It may not end up this way, but totally complimentary. You guys did a phenomenal job with the decorations in here. They were beautiful. Amen. Everybody say amen. Yeah. Say it again because where I, when I end, you might not think I think that. Okay. It was beautiful. It was absolutely, you could get a little bit of sense of what it was. And then down in the rest of the building, Karen Roth, she did amazing with the group that worked. It, we had beautiful, beautiful decorations. And they were wonderful. And so two weeks ago, Saturday afternoon, I'm walking through the building just making sure everything's in place for that service that was coming up. And as I'm walking through the building, I came up here, and the week, the Sunday before, you had taken down decorations that Sunday night and put them all away, and things were normal. But as I walked through here, all of a sudden I saw a little bit of glistening on the platform. And then I walked a little bit more, and I saw a lot more glistening. It was that evil, awful, horrible as my son says, hell created <laughs> glitter. Okay? And it was all over the place. And so there was glitter on the chairs, there was glitter here, there was glitter. And then I made the mistake, I looked back here. And there was a lot of glitter. So I thought, you know, I'll go get the vacuum and it'll take me just a couple minutes. <laughs> glitter is like sand at the beach. It goes where it doesn't belong. Okay? And glitter gets everywhere, and it doesn't come out. So I started vacuuming, and I'm vacuuming, and I'm vacuuming. And I'm here, you know, pounding with the vacuum. It's got to suck up that piece of glitter right there. In fact, there's one right there right now. (laughs) (laughs) And I really appreciated your decorations. They were beautiful, but not at that moment. At that moment, it was like, oh, and I, and, I, and I was, you know, and so I called my wife, said, I'm not going to be home. It's going to be a while. She said, you know, what are you doing? Never mind. <laughs> you know, uh, and I became very unhappy with the glitter. Oh, it was beautiful. It was wonderful. I wonder if God ever looks at our worship and says, oh, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. But what's left when you walk away? What's real about it? What is it really like? Does it really make a difference? Does it really impact you? Or do you just leave behind all show, all glow, and when you go, nothing goes with you? I wonder if God ever gets as frustrated as I do with our glitter of worship. Where you and I need to say, we've got to give God glitter-free worship. We give him the real thing. We give him something that is lasting, something that is impacting, something that, and then you add to it. Okay, let me add to it. To me, that's just the most obvious problem here. Now, highlight this. This was a repeated prayer. He had this attitude of impressing others. He had this idea of the regulations. He had this idea he was okay. It wasn't just his initial reaction. 
all the time he's in the temple, Jesus highlights this with the words and the, the way he puts the words together. He kept on over and over and over and over. This was his determined mindset. There was no change in this man's attitude. Let's add number five. The thing that really, really would bug his attitude towards other people. His attitude towards the other person. I thank you I'm not like that guy. I am so thankful that I'm not like all those others, the, those extortioners and those who are immoral and those who are, and especially this publican. This guy over here who's a tax collector, who works as a politician. Ugh. His immediate reaction. Think this through. Jesus has warned us in Matthew chapter 5. If you come to, your, to the altar and you remember that you have wrong attitude towards somebody, or if somebody has a wrong attitude towards you, what are you supposed to do? You leave your gift at the altar, you go be reconciled, and then you come back. Have you ever done worship? And you've come for worship, but you've had an argument on the way and you're still not reconciled? God says, that's not the way you're supposed to worship. Worship is being right with me and being right with other people. In fact, let's, let's be honest about this man. This man has a very critical eye. When he's there, he's not looking with any positive thought about others. He is looking with a critical eye. When he comes to worship, he's prejudiced. He doesn't know anything about the publican other than he's a publican. And that means publicans are bad, and he's bad. Doesn't know the man, but by his outward appearance, by his job, whatever it is, he has already discounted that individual. We know that he feels extremely superior to others who are even involved in worship. We understand that. But here's the kicker. He has no concern about helping the other person out. He feels so superior, he feels so inflated, that he knows this man, this publican, is somebody who needs spiritual help, but he's not giving it. It's below him. He has arrived. He has elevated. He has outgrown ministering to other people. And God rejects that worship. God rejects that type of attitude. Now, you know, does it ever show up in Christian circles? Yeah, Mahatma Gandhi, you probably know the story, that when he was a young man, he was against that caste system and the prejudice. He went to a Christian church after reading the Gospels and thought, surely in the Christian faith, I will find that they have an answer to prejudice. He walks into the church service and he's met immediately by somebody who says, you can't sit in this side of the building. It's reserved only for a certain group of people. You have to go stand at the back. And he said it made a big difference in his life that he discounted that Christians too were not living what their Lord had promoted. I wonder how many times people look at us and say, you're pharisaical. No, 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 we're not. I'm not a Pharisee. And I wonder how many of us have already thought like I did when I was going through this. Well, that Pharisee, he's a bad dude. That Pharisee, I'm sure glad I'm not like him. Now, wait a minute. Maybe at moments we are more pharisaical than we want to admit, and we should admit it then. We should ask ourselves these types of questions. When you come to worship, who do you think more about? God? What others are doing? Your own comfort? When you come into worship, what is your attitude towards others? Others who aren't like you. Others who don't do what you do. Do you have that critical eye? Do you have that demeaning spirit? Do you bother to even help out others spiritually? Who, they're not like you. They have lots of room for growth. 
They don't do the kids like you do the kids. They don't dress the way you dress. They don't say scriptures the way you say scriptures. Then what are you doing to help them? Or is it beneath you? When it comes to worship, when you sing the hymns, do you focus more on your comfort, how you are feeling, and just go through the motions of singing the hymns, the ritual, and saying, I know the hymns, I know them by heart, great. But what are you thinking of? Who are you focusing on? When you pray to the Lord, do you say in that meditation moments that we start off with, God, examine my heart? Or is it, God, help Wayne to go fast today? You know, we got to get home. You know, I pray that. You know, it never happens, but I pray that. When you, when you all of a sudden come, is church, in all seriousness, is it okay with you just to go through the ritual and be done? And it's just like, okay, I did it. But what did you put into it? The publican just did it. When you, when you are challenged, when something comes across the pulpit and says, hey, you should change, do you just explain it away? Well, I'm busy. I've been saved. I've done my share. I've done my turn. That, that, that applies to others. Do you compare yourself a lot with others in the room? That, that's what the publican did. I'm sorry, that's what the Pharisee did. That's the one that we say we're not like him. That we say we don't do what he did. And yet, in reality, we need to examine ourselves and say, do I? And understand that if we are pharisaical in our approach to worship, it is not pleasing to the Lord. It is not acceptable. It is not justified as we go our separate ways. Now, the guy we're supposed to be like, he's the publican. Okay, He is somebody that, quite frankly, he is... This is an interesting. The way Jesus did this is fascinating. Jesus took the worst example of somebody in their society, a tax collector working for the Romans, who was a traitor to the Jewish people. He takes that guy and compares him to those who were considered the most Jewish of Jews. Those who were the hoi polloi of the society of Jerusalem. And Jesus says, he's the hero. That's like us modern day and saying, I'm going to take somebody who is a, a politician. Our reaction to it earlier. I'm going to take a politician who is a career politician. I'm going to make him the hero of worship. And we would go, are you kidding me? I'm going to take somebody who is known in our community as a slumlord. And I'm going to make him the hero of the story. I'm going to take somebody that has been convicted in the past of inappropriately touching people, kids. And I'm going to make him the hero for the way he repented. And most of us would say, are you kidding me? You would compare that person to me? Obviously, I made it. Jesus takes that type of an illustration and he says that this guy who is bad in most people's eyes, he worshipped in a way that is a model worshipper. He was justified. What did he do? What was it that in his worship, which by the way, he was like the Pharisee in that it was repeated. It wasn't just one word or one two. The verbiage in here is this was his ongoing attitude the whole time he was there in the worship. The whole time he was involved with whatever was going on in the temple. He was, he was determined to be this. And what is the this? The, the, the standout features, humility. 
When he came in, there's great humility. We understand that. Where Jesus concludes and says, this guy is humble because he's justified. He didn't exalt himself, but he was abased. He humbled himself, and therefore he's exalted. We, we understand that. How does he humble himself? He stands afar off. That idea that he doesn't, he doesn't have to be seen. He's not doing the sitting in a way that everybody look at me. He's an individual that in his humility, he was humble before God, not lifting up his eyes. He beat his breast, that idea of you know, God, of outward sign of I am, I am terrible. Please, please, please you know, be merciful to me, a sinner. His humility is very broad. He's, and and this, is, this is most everyone here in the room. You would openly admit, I'm a sinner. And he's saying, no, that's, that's where we go. I, I, you would openly say, I don't deserve all that God has given to me. Well, that's where we start. A spirit of humility. That's what he's talking about in this one. Where you, there's a brokenness by what we have done or haven't done, rather than a pompous pride on what we've done in the past. He is very focused on the present. Who am I? What am I before God right now? Let me give you something else that strikes me. He's seeking to be accepted by God. When he came to worship, it was about seeking acceptance with God. That's what this was about. God, am I acceptable in your sight? Am I right with you? He wanted, he craved fellowship with the Lord. The other guy, he's praying within himself. The idea is he was very content with fellowship with himself. Where this man is saying, God, I need you. God, I need you. Not that, God, you need me. But, God, I came here because I need you. I want you. And I want to be right with you. And I came here today to know how to be right with you. I came here today to become more like you. I came here today to to say, God, please work in my heart. Examine my heart. Do what it takes to make me to be more acceptable in your sight. This is the story that, that comes from history. Is a fellow, a historian that went down into Argentina years ago. And he's visiting with the president of Argentina. And the president of Argentina looked at him and said, why is it you up in, North, in America, you people in the USA, why is the youth, why do you think it is that your country and Canada, they prospered so much? That in history, they, they were really profitable and prosperous where a lot of people in our region... Central America and South America, we have the same resources, abundance of natural resources. Why is it your countries are so far ahead in advancement, in technology, in worldwide influence compared to those of us who were in the southern half of the, of the Americas? And the historian said, I really don't know, but he said, I responded then saying, you obviously have thought this through, Mr. President. Why do you think it is? And the president of Argentina responded with something very insightful, which is historically accurate. He said, I think the big reason is this. Those who founded our territories, do you remember which nation usually did the South, Central American South? Okay, a lot of the Spanish world. He said, what were they after? Gold. But those who came up to North America, when they came and they founded those initial colonies, what were they after? It was worship. Gold versus God. Does it make a big difference? I tell you, it makes a big difference in what you do on Sunday mornings. When you come here seeking God, not seeking what other people think, but you seek God, that is a huge difference in your worship. 
If you come in with a heart that says, I want fellowship with God. In fact, this man wanted fellowship with God. He wanted to be right. He was not hesitating to confess. He wanted to be clean spiritually. He knew he couldn't do it on his own. He knew that he was a sinner. He knew that in order to be acceptable before God, he needed God's mercy. He needed God's forgiveness. He couldn't work for it. He couldn't earn it. That man over there, that's what he's trying to do. And it doesn't work. He's not justified in the eyes of God. But those who humble themselves, who seek God by saying, God, I need your cleansing. I need your forgiveness. I need you to do a work that I don't deserve. Forgive me of my sins. Help me to grow. Those are the ones that he says they walk away justified. Then those who are born again and come back week after week, who say to God, God, I'm coming here not because I think I'm better than others. I don't think I'm a better parent than so-and-so. I'm not here to, to compare what, what I have done as far as vocally or musically or in other areas of ministry. I'm not here to compare. I'm here to find out, am I right with you? I'm here to find out, what can I do this week to be more right with you? If that's a proper way of saying it. God, I'm here because I want you. I want you to work in my heart. I want to be closer to you this coming week than I was last week. That's the publican. Does he deserve it? No. Did the Pharisee deserve it? No. Do we deserve it? No. But God is seeking for those who worship him in truth and in spirit. The truth is we're sinners. The spiritual facts are we need Christ. We need his forgiveness to be born again and enter his family. And then we need his forgiveness week after week and day after day. And we need to come humbly before him. You want to see what else this man did? He wasn't critical of others. He wasn't looking down at others. You never see where he is making a comparison. You know why that is? You know why he isn't critical? He's overwhelmed with his own flaws. He's overwhelmed with his own faults. Instead of looking at others that aren't what they should be, he doesn't care about that. He's saying, God, I'm comparing myself to you. And I'm not all that I should be or can be, and I need your grace. And God blesses him for it. God, you say, now, which one are you more like? Now when you look at him and say, okay, do I tend to be pharisaical or am I more like the publican? And the moment, and this is me, the moment I say, well, I'm like the public and I fear that I've become proud and arrogant. But I need to ask some questions. Maybe I can pose the questions to you the way I posed them to my own heart. When I come and worship, what of these words describes my worship? Focused or wandering? Desired or doing it out of duty? When it comes to worship, is it real or pretend? Is it ritual or relational? Not just going through the motions, but I'm really trying to connect with the Lord. Is it anxious to change or anxious for Him to get done? And when I describe it, is it self-focused or other people-focused? When I think about my worship, is it, is it God-focused, God-pleasing, getting attention or giving adoration? When you examine your heart, is, it, is this worship time-oriented or God-oriented? When we talk about worship, is it for you an enjoyable event or is it one of endurance? When you come, is it critical 
of finding where things should be done different? Or is it coming with concern to help things to improve? Loving or withdrawn? Is your worship drawing close to God or often no change at all? Is your worship attentive to the word? Or are you busy doing other things while the word is being given out? What is your... What would, you, what would you check here? What would be your response? When you walk away this morning, can you say, God, I know that I was here to learn. It helped me. It challenged me. And I'm going to walk away justified. Or are you just going to walk away and say, okay, I did it. And I'm really glad we don't have church tonight too. Can I ask you a more probing question? Parents, what are you teaching your kids about worship? When you walk away, when you drive away, what are you teaching them about what you discuss? What are you teaching them as the important things in worship? Worship is big. It's huge in the mind of God. It's something he wants from you, me. It can be done right. It can be done wrong. And by God's grace, you and I need to commit to say, I want to do it right. And that may mean we change some of the things that we do next week. Maybe we change when we have a meditation time, you meditate. It may be that you examine your heart before you walk in the door. It may mean that you slow down the morning and say, okay, I need to think, what am I going to walk away with to be more like Christ? It may mean you change what you talk about afterwards with the kids so you help direct them to worship was about God it wasn't about clothing. And it wasn't about things. It was to be about walking closer to Christ. Maybe the change is, I have been more focused on what people do for me than what I do for others. And I need to get involved in helping minister to others. That's part of worship. What are you going to do?